meeting with 427 congressmen in one day. Or how a few days in D.C. gave me some optimism on our climate policy. Hello, good day, I'm Peter Ehrlich, and this is Into the Details. Six months ago, I woke up at four in the morning, unable to sleep due to an overabundance of worrying about emissions. That became a blog post on carbon pricing systems, which taught me that there are more than 60 national and regional programs that exist in the world today. Through writing that post, I also discovered Citizens Climate Lobby, which exists to forward carbon pricing programs in the United States. Their approach intrigued me for being outspokenly civilized, bipartisan, respectful, and earnestly valuing relationships over demands. As a CCL member, I recently made a trip to join a thousand other volunteer lobbyists on our annual visit to the offices of our senators and house members in Washington, D.C. Until talking with congressmen myself, I couldn't fully understand why we were invited back year after year to visit with red and blue representatives alike. After participating in our democracy for the day, I feel we played some small part in moving a constructive dialogue forward in our country's national decision-making body, the U.S. Congress. And uh, in the post, I have a picture here of all 1,000 of us gathered with a giant U.S. flag on the steps of the Capitol buildings. Section 1, Carbon Fee and Dividend. Citizens Climate Lobby was founded in 2007 with the goal of advocating for one simple policy. Put a fee on carbon emissions at the source, be that a coal mine, an oil well, or a port of entry. The funds raised will not go to the government, but will be returned to citizens with a monthly check. This is carefully designed as a bipartisan bill through years of work to hear concerns across the political spectrum. The price on carbon is about as free market as can be, leaving it up to businesses to transition fuel sources in the least wasteful and most cost-saving way possible. At the same time, the dividends go back to the American people rather than growing the size of government programs. There is a brilliant simplicity to the model. Of course, a fee on energy stands to increase the price of all goods which are transported or grown with energy. This causes not only a push towards a clean energy transition, but it also incentivizes domestic and local economies, narrowing the wealth gap. While prices rise, citizens get checks to help offset these costs. The majority of Americans use below average amounts of energy. The wealthiest Americans fly and consume many times more and can more afford the increased cost of those things. The majority of American households benefit under a carbon fee and dividend. And in the post here, I have a picture with some graphs from the CCL household impact study, where we break down and see that pretty similarly between rural suburbs and urban, uh, most households benefit, and a small number have a very small loss of income, less than 1%. This model has been well proven time and time again. British Columbia has had a carbon tax since 2008 and a well-studied economic gain relative to Canadian provinces. 
Alaska has a similar program, whereby fees from oil leases are returned to Alaskan citizens by check. New energy projects require predictable economic models in order to make large, long-lead investments, such as Arkansas's investment into green steel. As a price on carbon protects new businesses which are developing cleaner manufacturing techniques. Carbon fee and dividend is shown to be an incredibly effective climate policy. Those curious about the science behind it can start with the MIT modeled En-ROADS online simulator of global temperatures. And in the in the post here, I have an image from a screenshot from the the web simulator En-ROADS. Um, there's a black line representing our current follow, uh, future with no policy intervention of any sort like no taxes on coal or, or, or carbon fee and dividend or whatever, um, and it, it pretty clearly hits, uh, up, uh, I think, 3.3 <clears throat> degrees, uh, degrees Celsius. Whereas if you put in a carbon fee and dividend effective now, that drops it down to 2.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and it's among, among the options at our disposal, it is perhaps the most powerful. You may be concerned about countries without a carbon price Undercut, undercutting the United States domestic market, and rightly so. Europe, with one of the strongest carbon prices today, is solving this by introducing in 2024 a tariff on imported goods according to their embodied carbon, which matches the domestic carbon price. This is already having a pronounced effect. The U.S. Congress is considering its own Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, in response to the European tariff, with some groundwork being laid out in the recently introduced Prove-It Act in the Senate. Section 2. The People of Citizens' Climate Lobby I find that one of the many valuable qualities a person can have is the ability to think about how the smallest details of action fit into a narrative far larger than themselves. This, in addition to compassion, drive, and empathy, is what CCLers have in spades. When you think environmentalist, you may think about someone chaining themselves to a bulldozer, or throwing orange slime at a priceless painting. You may think of someone with a blind hatred of some development, but without the ability to work constructively within a system to manifest the change that they wish to see. When you think lobbyist, you might think about someone with two briefcases of money and a head for nothing but selfishness and greed, looking for the first representative he or she can buy. But I learned a new term this weekend. Congressmen call them lizard lobbyists. CCL bucks both of these ideas. Instead, CCL embodies by-the-book de-escalation, nonviolent communication, and relationship-based negotiation. The proof of success is that CCL has been welcomed into the offices of the Capitol building every year for more than the past decade. And here I link out to a hilarious YouTube video by, by the founder of CCL talking about his very first lobby meeting where he's not, he's not trained in this and all he can think about is where he's putting his feet, um, but he's, he tells it so well. Um, anyway, I didn't understand why this worked until hearing secondhand and eventually firsthand about the positive reputation which precedes us to any office. Legislators are used to being cursed out by those who feel angry and wronged by lack of climate action. 
They are used to having their heartstrings yanked out of their chests by dying cancer patients. And they are used to being bought and sold by companies who seek power over them. Their job is to meet with the people that they represent. And when those people come in politely, interested in learning about their needs, and ask for a simple and well-researched bipartisan policy, it's music to their ears. Of course, it's not always like that. There are 535 members of Congress, and collectively, we were only able to meet about 80% of them. Some of those meeting requests were canceled or cut short or ignored, but others were not. It might surprise you to learn that the Conservative Climate, Caucus, Climate Solutions Caucus is the second largest conservative caucus. It might surprise you to learn that when one conservative congressperson, to the lobbying team's shock and surprise, greeted them with beers, food, and a personal tour of the Capitol. Section 3. What works for everyone? As someone who's almost always lived in blue-leaning areas, I was interested in what conservative folks would say about this policy and climate change in general, in a safe and educated environment. I was certainly rewarded for my efforts when, at the start of a meeting with a conservative staffer, I was greeted with something to the effect of, Dems may not be used to this idea, but we're not a party of climate deniers. By and large, we saw immense relief from conservatives when they saw that our policy, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, does not put the funds towards residential weatherization or clean tech research or anything specific at all, but just back into the pockets of Americans. Given the sometimes even life or death effects of even marginal price increases for the many Americans living close to the poverty line, this makes a heck of a lot of sense. We also saw a strong desire from lawmakers, especially on the right, to build up American innovation. They understand the cost of outsourcing our labor to the developing world in the name of cheap stuff, and the benefit of having our own local economy buoyed instead. Our own steelmaking and other industries are already cleaner than the world average, and pricing for clean energy would have an immediate effect locally. Heck. Even speaking as someone who is like as not to be labeled as an environmentalist, I would rather see battery mineral mining happen onshore where we can regulate the pollution caused. Section 4. Environmentalists become pro-development. Transitioning our nation to clean energy will require substantial new infrastructure and Citizens Climate Lobby advocates, advocates a bipartisan approach to developing it. The clean energy sources we have to work with are solar, especially in the southern states, wind, especially offshore and on the plains, and maybe nuclear power, if we align new technology and public sentiment. That's pretty much it. Nothing new is going to appear and be scaled up on the time horizons at which we as a species must move. And in the post here, I have an, uh, a, a diagram of the United States of America, the continental U.S. at least, um, with the transmission lines that we would need to build over the coming years in order to move solar power around. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, known as FERC, has the ability to cite natural gas and other pipelines using eminent domain, with essentially no input from the states. Uh, which are covered. 
If that same amount of energy were transmitted electrically instead, that project could easily have an additional 5 to 10 years of high-risk permitting negotiations. Many states have ambitious clean energy goals by 2030, and the power transmission has to exist at significant scale at that point. Uh, David Roberts has more detail in one of his posts, which I link out. And I also show a, show a chart of about 20 states and their clean energy goals, ranging from 2025 to 2050, um, and renewable fractions, fractions of energy, which has to be renewable or carbon-free. Furthermore, research has shown that 80 to 90% of new projects blocked under environmental uh, review um, through the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, um, 80 to 90% of those projects that are blocked are clean energy ones, and calls are strong to speed up the review process to approve and deny projects more quickly. And here I have a chart of projects in the queue, and we can see as of 2022 and 2023, the, the large majority of them are, are renewable energy and clean energy. In the halls of Congress, we were chatting with one Democratic senator when he asked us about these issues. Hearing we refer electric transmission, he broke out with a wide grin and said, Where have you been all this time? Section 5. Lobby Day Weekend After a certain amount of climate reading, it feels almost impossible to stomach non-essential air travel. Fortunately for us, Amtrak service in Vermont works well, and CCLers make good company on a day's train ride. Once in D.C., Sunday and Monday were spent in all manner of talks and conferences before a Tuesday of meetings with members of Congress. CCL did a superb job of welcoming everyone with a willingness to show up, regardless of specific climate or policy knowledge, age, and so forth. Sessions ranged from how to tell a good, reliable story to role-playing on how to hold a line of listening and respect in the face of differing opinions. We heard from ex-staffers, former members of Congress, retired generals, clean energy and policy experts, nonprofit directors, deans, and student leaders in an inspiring buffet of creativity, drive, and passion. Evenings were spent in teams preparing for our meetings. Who were we meeting with? Are we meeting in person or with staff? What have their policies been? Do they know about carbon fee and dividend? What do we want to hear from them about? And what do we want to share? In all cases, we were prepared to go back and find common values, if not already aligned, on specific issues. And here I have a picture of the seven of us uh, outside with uh, Becca Ballant, our, our senator, or Congresswoman uh, Becca Ballant, um, and standing outside of her office. Um, lots of smiles. There were seven of us from the Vermont chapter who chose to make the trip down for Lobby Day. Impressively, we had one high school student and one college student who joined for the trip with just a few weeks' notice, determined to make a difference. We met with both Vermont senators and our congresswoman, who was an absolute bundle of energy. Although each office had a different lead focus, Sanders on broad and deep climate solutions, Welch on permitting reform, and Ballant on mental health, all were excited to have us back and hugely supportive of our work. As the day drew to a close, my poor introverted self could finally unwind. I left the hotel building and stood on a nearby street corner 
watching the nightlife of the upper middle class neighborhood. As I watched traffic go by, for at least a little while, I did not feel the usual pit in my stomach as I watched a succession of gasoline cars roll by, and as the city exhaust smells lazily wafted towards me in the heat of the D.C. night. I am cautiously optimistic today. Perhaps we did have some positive effect in lobbying. Just maybe we had some effect on the powers that be in helping navigate this gargantuan nation of ours through the biggest crisis of our time. I do know one thing for sure, though. Just by showing up, we did one hell of a lot for one another. And finally, I have a list of legislation you can support um, related to these efforts. Um, there is, of course, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. Um, there's permitting reform, of which there are many bills with, with no clear number one. Um, the Prove It Act, which sets the foundation of a, of a, of a tariff on carbon. There's the Maritime Pollution Accountability Act, which was just introduced and uh, creates fees for shipping fuel pollution. There's the Save Our Sequoias Act, which updates forestry practices in the face of wildfires. And there's the Increased TSP Access Act, which helps training uh, technical skills related to clean energy. Um, for all of these, I sort of have a renewed faith here that it actually makes a difference when you get in touch with your, with your congressperson, so it seems all very worthwhile. Thanks for listening.